Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The Telegraph. Podcasts. The worst is not, so long as we can say, this is the worst. Mm-hmm. And that, right there, 400 years before Freud, before anybody, yeah. is Shakespeare saying, talk. Mm. If you can articulate your pain, it is not the end of the line. He's one of Britain's most prolific actors, appearing in everything from the Royal Shakespeare Company to Netflix's Sex Education. He's done Hollywood blockbusters, lavish costume dramas, HBO mega shows, and he's played vampires, kings and serial killers. But today he's here to talk about his latest role, which sees him dressed up as a fish finger. <laughs> Welcome to Mad World, James Purifoy. Oh, it's such a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Brownie. How are you really? How am I really? I love that question that you do. Um, I've been listening to a lot of your podcasts on a journey. I've been filming up in Leeds recently and uh, I've listened to so many of your shows which have had me laughing and crying abby morgan just broke my heart um i there may be tears from this man today so oh, uh, that's we've had we've done three records today I, I leak quite badly and there's been a lot of leaking but this room is made for leaking yeah like, no i can tell lots of members of the telegraph just come in here to cry generally <laughs> on that not even like Do you have tissues here um no. i have tissues in my bag well could actually. i have a, a snotty yes. tissue there you go they're not snotty Look, how am i really i'm just going to go back to that how are i'm you feeling really? a little bit apprehensive Today, I've done quite a lot of interviews today because I'm publicising this this funny little film. But I've had this one sort of sitting there, uh, sort of knowing it's it's here and and knowing that people go deep on your show, which is lovely to hear people go deep and talk about things. But it does make you feel slightly apprehensive because it's not me just talking to a therapist, which is what I think people think that they're doing. It's me talking to a therapist in front of a hundred thousand people. Mm-hmm. So that's and that always makes you feel. I I feel a little bit. <gasps> Oh, gosh, just be careful what you say. But don't be too careful what you say, because where's the show otherwise? Be boundaried. Be boundaried. That's what my wife said. She's uh, she's training to be a psychotherapist, and she said, just just beware of your boundaries, darling. OK, what are your boundaries, oh, James? Oh, God almighty, my boundaries. I don't know. Let's find out. OK, let's find out. I think that's the only way, isn't it? So... Fisherman's Friends, yes, one and for all. Yes, which I went to see yesterday. Oh, you saw it, yes, yes, yes. yes, yes. And um, it's a film about a group of fishermen who sing sea shanties. Indeed, 
But it's really a film about male mental health and friendship, isn't it? In a way, yeah. Which is a strange thing. It's it's an idea, you know. The idea that you can wrap a sort of rom-com, a feel-good rom-com, around a man who is going through a depressing midlife crisis, you know, that he's he's dealing with stuff that is... Yeah, a lot of blokes find it difficult to talk about, as you've talked about on this show so many times, you know. Yeah, he, Jim, we catch up with Jim about a year later after the last film. And he's on tour, they've been on tour, the band's been on tour, they're receiving adulation from crowds all over the country, but he's not, it's not fitting him terribly well. He doesn't particularly like the attention, he's getting grumpy with people, he's getting grumpy with the band, he's storming out of performances, he's getting grumpy with his mum, you know, his friends, everything... Essentially, shit's squeezing out sideways mm-hmm. because he's not dealt with the trauma of losing his dad, who was he was really close to, and he was brought up by you know his his his, his obviously his mum and his dad, but he was out at sea with his dad a lot, and he took over the business. He had an incredible relationship with this man, and so that has to be teased out of him with the love of a good woman. <laughs> love of a really good woman. A good love. woman. Who's just got, so, like, she's three years sober. Yes, she is, indeed. She's three years sober. She is played by the inestimable Imelda May, who's never acted before. What? Job. No, never, never, never been in front of a camera in that way. You know, she's done pop videos and stuff like that and, you know, been filmed live on stage a million times, but that's a way different thing than doing acting. And rather gallingly, <laughs> she did it incredibly well and just came in and just blew us all away um, and got it straight away. So all those drama students who might be listening to this who think that you really need three years of drama school, you clearly don't <laughs> because you can just turn up like Imelda did and deliver just a beautifully fresh, honest, authentic performance that, that I think is glorious. Do you sing? No, I growl. But that's your voice? Yeah, some of the t- I think most of the time it's my voice, yeah. I think pretty much all of the time. You never quite know what goes on in that edit. And I know that the Fisherman's Friends do a lot of underscoring themselves. Okay, so the actual band. So the actual band come in and sing some of the stuff underneath us, maybe when we might need a little lift. My nine-year-old daughter, is. Yeah. Obs- she's going to be so mortified that I've admitted this on the... Go on. She doesn't listen. I don't let her listen to it. So that's fine. So that's good. Um, she loves the Fisherman's Friends. Yes, but she loves the band. She loves the band. Of course she loves the band. My kids love the band. My kids, you know, we have, I've got two five-year-old boys and a nine-year-old girl and a 25-year-old. He's less interested in the Fisherman's Friends, obviously, <laughs> but, but that would be, I think, weird. But uh, my younger kids, uh, yeah, it's on in the car. <laughs> An annoying amount. I mean, much as I love them, I, I like a little bit of variety in the car. But they will just insist on that album over and over again because they know all the words. And they can, we don't allow them, we're brutal, we're like sort of Victorian parents, we don't allow them iPads or iPhones in the car. We say, look out of the window, plenty to see out there. <laughs> What's wrong with the window? <laughs> it, That's we, what we had. Well, we have a new car now. In the old car, we actually had screens in the back of the, in the, in the seat backs. And uh, obviously, I had to lie and say they were broken. And we don't know how they work. We simply don't know how they work. <laughs> so, so let's. <laughs> so they have to sing in the car and do quizzes. Quizzes. Of course, quizzes. This sounds like a great long car journey. <laughs> yeah. Well, we do long car journeys a lot. Yeah. 
Um, let's talk about, you know, you're an actor, you are not Jim, but no. you have admitted in... Pre- admitted, that admitted. sounds like... Oh my goodness me, like, what, what's she going to say? Um, you, you've spoken about that, you, that you've had therapy yourself, and it's not something that men do talk about that often. No, I, 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 which, I, which is strange, I think maybe more people do now. I think people are more used to it. Uh, Yes, I went through a patch in my late 20s where things were really bad and I was behaving in a way, let's not go into details because there are people involved, but I was behaving in a way that I wasn't happy with. And I went to see a a man who had a, I went to see several actually, and eventually landed on a man who, not physically obviously, but in (laughs) his room, who, yeah, for a couple of years we sat down at 11 o'clock on a Saturday morning and talked with varying degrees of success. It's a fascinating process, therapy. Really interesting. And and I did get to the bottom of why I was finding it difficult to to have intimate, proper intimate relationships with people, with women. Okay. Which we'll probably get into in a minute. Okay. Well, do you want to get into it now? Well, it's all to do with boarding school, you know. Well, this boarding feels school, appropriate. Our first boarding school, boarding school, boarding school. Our, our opener for this season, Joanna mm. Scanlon. Yes, well, <clears throat> I spoke, yeah, I mean, I listened to her and I thought, again, extraordinary. Boarding school is a huge, huge issue. I think, I think especially, I went to boarding school when I was seven. You um, went to Sherbourne? Sherbourne, yeah. I went to boarding, and it was a frightening place, you know, terrifying bullying, Um a headmaster that was eventually found out to be a, a you know, a, a paedophile and sex offender. Various other sex offenders at the school. Um, it was a really scary place, and and I think what boarding, I think what boarding schools do or what they did is as is a way to cauterize people, cauterize people's emotions, send them off to the empire, watch horrific things happen, and be able to follow orders. Mm-hmm. That's my theory as to how they started what they're about. I think they were for people who didn't like children very much, didn't really want to be around their kids, get rid of them, see them off. And I think one of the things that I find astonishing, Brian, even now is, even now I know of parents who will say that their kids are going off to boarding school age seven, and they know, they cannot have not heard how damaging it is to be sent away at that age. They cannot not have heard yeah. it, if you would understand what I mean. That's what I find astonishing. You know, there are boarding schools up and down this country full of seven-year-olds. Mm. And those parents know what they're doing. And they're doing it willingly. I find yeah, it blows my fucking mind. Would you... I mean, I'm... I'm no, uh, I wouldn't. Yes, so I didn't need to ask the question. To, as a seven-year-old. However, when you get to 13, I can sort of see it, and especially if a kid wants to. My boy went to uh, boarding school. He begged to go to boarding school. What that says about me as a parent, I don't know. But he wanted to go, and he enjoyed it. And if he had ever said, I've had enough, I don't want to go anymore, I would have pulled him out in an instant. So can we talk a bit about your experiences as a seven-year-old? I mean, you know, abandonment, that's what Mm -hmm. it is. So my parents split up when I was four. And again, hilariously, my dad... My dad went to Harrow. He had a terrible, terrible time at Harrow. So that would be in the 40s, 50s. Terrible time at Harrow. Vowed, as he left, he asked the taxi driver, apparently, to stop at the end of the drive and uh, so he could put his feet out and shake the dust off his shoes. Vowing never 
to look at that place again. Until June the 3rd, 1964, when I was born, when immediately he put me down for it. Really? I, again, what's going on there? Why, why would you do that? So I didn't go to Harrow. I went to Sherborne instead because I was... By then, my parents had separated. My mother wanted me nearby. I lived in Somerset, so I was sent to a school in Dorset. And you spend a lot of time in that therapy room being quite angry about that until you come to a realisation that, you know, they were just doing what thousands of other parents were doing. Mm. There was no, was no uh, malignant side to it. But you, you were left in a... I mean, it obviously sounds like an unsafe environment. It was an unsafe environment, without a shadow of a doubt. I mean, I was bullied very badly. You know, there were a couple of lads, one in particular, who, uh, who saw it as their job to make my life a misery. And so, you know, you go back at the end of the holidays and uh, I used to vomit. I used to get out of the car at the school drive and vomit. And it was just fear, terrible fear. And it's just what happens to people. And not everybody, not everybody, but to a lot of them mm-hmm. and a lot of us. It's very damaging. And please don't do it. Dear listeners, if you're thinking about it, don't do it. Certainly not until they're much older and able to deal with it and able to express themselves and articulate what's wrong and whether or not they want to continue. And certainly don't continue forcing them to go if they don't like it. Did you articulate to your parents? No, because you're frightened and you think it's the best and they're doing their best and then, you know, no. They knew. See, that's the other thing. Here's another little story. So Robin Lindsay, who was the headmaster, who was the paedophile headmaster, and again, I find this extraordinary. Um, he was discovered. He knew, everybody knew it. It had happened. He'd not gone to prison, but he had been arrested for it. It had come to light. I don't know why he didn't go to prison, because he should have done. And this was at the time? And this was at the time. And I remember him them having a memorial service at Sherborne, at the Sherborne Abbey, where 800 parents turned up to wave him off and gave him a big standing ovation. Because the fear, they would rather do that than have their child be known to go to the pedo school. So they kept up so and colluded the, with the... Yes, they absolutely did that. You know, it's, it's just astonishing to me. Were you aware of the sexual abuse going there on? Were my, the weird thing was that my mum and Robin Lindsay had been friends during the 60s, 50, 60s, I guess. Had been friends. That's sort of, you know, the same sort of social circuit. So I think I was spared because of that relationship. So I was never actually sexually abused by him. But other people were. In weird, just inappropriate touching, staring, looking. Uh, you know, him dressing up in ladies' clothes, women's clothes. I mean, it, it, was just all, it was just all deeply inappropriate and wrong, what was going on there. And you left Sherborne with one... Yeah, I then went from Sherborne Prep to Sherborne School. I wasn't terribly engaged academically. That's not really a bloody surprise, is it? No, well, but by then, but the bigger school was kind of better. You know, it was a bit more robust. Uh, I didn't, there was, I didn't come across any sexual abuse there. Um, just, just outright physical abuse. Just outright physical abuse, you know. But not even, not, no, there wasn't that much. But, you know, but yes, physical abuse from housemasters caning you, beating you. You know, I held a school record for some time of having the most canings in a term. You know, I was not... Canings? I mean, canings. I mean, literally literally spread across, the, like, Tom Brown school days, across a dining table, headmaster comes in with a cane from the bean patch 
mud on the end of it, bend over, whack, whack, whack. And this was in the 70s? Uh, yes, and of course it never did anything. You know, the idea that, oh, you know, but you never did that again. Yes, I did. Straight away. Because that's why you've got the record for caning. Yes, exactly. It had no effect on me whatsoever and it made me a lifelong uh, campaigner about beating children, smacking children. You know, it's just no good. You just... Somebody once said something really interesting to me. I asked him, because he was the first person I knew who had a baby, I said, would you ever beat them? He said, oh, God, no. And he said this, he said, I don't want her to understand the language of violence and nor do I want her to tolerate it. And I think that, for me, was just fundamental. Violence has a... I've done a lot of violence on film and stage work, and, you know, you, you work in beats. <laughs> Interesting word. You work in beats, you work in, you work in moments, and you work in language, grammar, syntax. There's all of that that goes on with violence. You know, when somebody says, oh, it's all right, you hear a kid, it's, it's, it's fine, you know, as long as you just give them a tap. Well, one person's tap is another person's punch. Mm. And you can't legislate that. So let's just legislate it all. You know, most countries, Western democracies, a lot of them now ban it entirely because I've never hit my, any of my children. They're fine. We get on fine. They, you know, they, they're good young kids. I've never needed to smack them. So why would anybody? Mm. There are so many. Yes, it takes time to discipline, to talk to a child about why what they did was wrong. You know, it's always a shortcut. It's always out of impatience. It's always because you've lost your temper. It's always about you. It's not actually about them. Did you find the caning, in a way, did it just make you actually more angry and more likely to... It just made me so bored with it. And I think one of the things, one of the reasons why I just wanted to get out, I just thought, it's just wrong. All this shit is just wrong. The whole thing, you know, we weren't allowed to talk to kids from the town. Weird. Why not? Why aren't you? You know, I remember being sent home once because I was found talking to kids from the town. And it's all about that, you know, it's about public schools. It's about the upper classes. It's about keeping you away from. It's about ruling classes. It's about all of that stuff. You know, I just found it, I found it very difficult to deal with. So I endeavoured to get thrown out is what happened. I think it was my first term of my A-level year. I had not done well in my O-levels. I got one. And at the end of that first term of my, I, we went out and got drunk. We stole a combine harvester. As you do. And we got caught with a bunch of girls. And uh, the person who caught us told me to go back to my housemaster, and I did, and tell him what happened, and I did. My housemaster didn't even open his eyes, I mean, because it was five o'clock in the morning. He just said, pack your bags, get out. And so you did. And I did. And then my mum arrived, picked me up. She was delighted I got home a day early. <laughs> Can I ask you something? How do you go about stealing a combine harvester? There's a start button. Oh, is there? There was a start. I think, I, I don't really remember. We were drunk, you know, but it, it wasn't good. It wasn't good. It was a very expensive bit of equipment. It's not something, I'm laughing about it, but it's not something I'm particularly impressed with myself about. But it did the job. It did the job. It got you out. He got me out. What, what happened then? And then I went home, and of course I was lying around the house, and my mum said, you're not lying around the house. Go, go and get a job. And I have a stepbrother, and he was always moaning about not being able to get jobs. I went, oh, I'm going to prove that you can get a job. It's really easy to get a job. And I went to the job centre, and in the job centre there was a... They used to do a thing called the Youth Opportunities Programme, a YOP scheme, and I was hired by Yeovil Hospital as a porter. So I did that. 
for <laughs> two years. Wow. I was there and I ended up working in the operating theatres as the operating theatre porter. It's fascinating. You almost became a mortician, didn't and you? And then worked for the last couple of months, few two or three months, six months, whatever it was, can't really remember, in the morgue as a mortician's assistant, which uh, has alarmed some directors. You know, when I was playing a serial killer particularly and talking about knives going into skin, and they go, how do you know that? And I said, because I've done it. <laughs> Because we used to, have to do preparations, preps of, of, of for the autopsies. What does that? How does that affect you? I just well, I was seventeen and a half, and I thought it was cool. I was a bit of a goth. I thought, wow, oh my god, this is so cool. <laughs> have you read um, a terrible kindness? No. It's a book. It's a novel, and it's about a trainee mortician who gets sent to Aberfan. Oh right, okay. After the Oof. and and has and, and volunteers is is an amazing book, but it's. Yeah. It's fascinating on that. That Yeah, I bet. I bet, because it is fascinating. You know, there were all kinds of things that happened in that mortuary that you just go, oh, my goodness me. I mean, just stuff, you know, games, pranks, other porters, winding people up, you know. I mean, again, this is the 80s now, so probably stuff like that wouldn't be allowed. You'd probably get fired for it now. But people dressing up as corpses, pretending to be a corpse, lying on the trolley, three o'clock in the morning, night shift. Can somebody come and put this body away? He comes down, put the body away, you sit up. <laughs> Making it terrible. <laughs> Watch his face, it's a drain of blood. Is that how you discovered you could act? <laughs> as a corpse. I was literally corpsing. Um, how does one get from... Acting to from, be from, assistant. From, from a morgue, you know, to the... Well, OK, so my dad calls at one point. I'm about 18 now. And he says, so what, what, what are you going to do with your life? And I said, well, there are two jobs I might be interested in. There's an operating theatre assistant, which I didn't need A-levels for. You could get like a B-tech or something like that to do, which is the assistant to the anaesthetist. I said, or oh, I might do my mortician's exams. And he said, why don't you come and live with me? And he lived in Surrey, and there was a technical college near him. And uh, I went to the tech, and I was going to go into advertising. It was very hip, going into advertising in the 80s. So I thought I'd do English, media studies, communication, something like that. But I needed to do a third A-level. So I went. I was told to go around the college and, you know, do try out some courses. And there was a shed on the edge of the woods, and there was a window in the door, and I asked the guy, I said, what's that? And then he said, oh, you don't want to go near there, full of weirdos in there. And I said, well, what is it? And he said, the drama studio. And I went, oh, OK, well, let's have a look. And my mum had been in Amdram. This was not unfamiliar territory to me. And I looked through the window, and there were about 16 people, and four of them were rather flamboyantly dressed boys, and um, 12 of them were rather gorgeous girls. And I thought, well, that's, that's marvellous. Look at that in there. And, you know, I was like a kid in a sweet shop. And uh, became and went and joined them. And then I got cast as Romeo and Romeo and Juliet. And that was the first time, the, you know, the Billy Elliot thing, the electricity, the, whoa, I can do this. I mean, I could do lots of things quite well. But I thought, no, I can really do this. And uh, did that, then try getting into drama school. Didn't get in the first time. They said, go away, do some more acting. So I did a long tour, maybe six-month tour of Equus, mm -hmm. uh, about the boy who blinds six horses. 
and had the most extraordinary experience. You know, we were literally doing, you know, an, a different venue every night for six months on an old thing called the Eastern Arts Tour. And uh, that gave me incredible experience. And I remember being on stage one night there at the Woolsey Theatre in Ipswich, which was the biggest theatre I'd ever played, maybe a 500-seater, and experiencing that extraordinary, megalomaniacal mm. <laughs> moment of knowing that you have got 500 people in the palm of your hand, that you can do anything with these people. There's a special... You talk to any actor who's done a lot of stage work, there's a special quality of silence that happens where the coughing stops and shifting in seats and people using programmes, but you can tell when it's... And you can really feel that it's really exciting because it's that in that moment you have absolute power where you feel you can make them laugh, you can make them cry, you can do anything you like. And they'll go with you on that journey. And that's a really exciting moment. And it's kind of why you keep doing it over and over because you're searching constantly for that. Is it like a buzz. high? Yeah, really. Yeah. Obviously. Yeah. Is it like a high? Is it, it, it a high? It just is a high. So, you know, when people say they come off stage and they're on a high, it's, it's absolutely true. They are. And, you know, it's very hard, which is why, you know, I tend to party after shows because you need to really calm down and come down from it. Is partying something that you've done, James? Yeah, of course, I'm an actor. And I have done partying. I I always love that word, partying. So you've met them. Was your partying party-ish, or was it? Did it get? Did it get sort of? It never got. No, no, it never got. I know. I, I always. I, I think there are addicts. I think there are addicts, and I think probably there are non-addicts. But it's all mental health issues, isn't yeah. it? You know, they, it's all about that. And I've been doing an interview this morning with your gardening correspondent. <laughs> Um, on the Telegraph. And one of the things we were talking about is gardening and mental health. Right. And one of the things of why gardening is so good about mental health and uh, such a good uh, counterpoint to depression is that it gets you out of yourself. Yes. You know, one, you know, I'm listening to your podcast. One of the things that people talk about a lot is about, you know, the rumination, the, the talking to yourself, the, 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 the constant circular thoughts, circular thoughts that I find so hard to break out of. But if you're dealing with a recalcitrant rose or, you know, or a tarragon plant that isn't quite going the way you want it to go, it means that you're not, you're not thinking about you. You're thinking about other things. And that's a great release, you know, that for that couple of hours in the garden, you're thinking about other things. And that can be a great escape. And it's not harmful. It's good for you. And it's good for the garden. Acts of service. Yeah, acts of service. Exactly. Exactly that. Whether it be to a plant or a person, it doesn't matter. It gets you out of you. Does acting get you out of you? Oh, God, yeah. I'd have a kind of theory. I think some actors, maybe not all, but, you know, again, you have to be really careful with generalisations, don't you? Mm-hmm. I think some actors, I think me included possibly, uh, like playing other people because they don't really like being themselves very much. Do you not like yourself? Oh, sometimes I do and sometimes I don't. But I, you know, I sometimes like playing other people because I, like, I think I'd prefer to be that person. And it doesn't, you know, acting's a curious job. You know, and I, you know, some people are fucking brilliant at it, and you watch them and you just are in awe of what they're doing. Mark Rylance, I saw him again in Jerusalem the other day, fourth time I've seen it. But because um, I just like watching to see how he does it, 
It happens quite rarely, but when it happens, it's a really exciting moment. Obviously, it, once you realise it's happening, it stops happening. It's a bit like uh, skiing or, you know, one of those kind of sports, surfing or something like that. Once you, once you realise you're riding the wave perfectly, you'll fall off because yeah. it, it, it's only in that moment. But it, because you're unconscious and when you're sometimes when you're acting, you totally forget who you are and you are only behaving in the way that that person would behave. And it's it's weird and exciting and spiritual. And it, it's a real kick when, when that happens. But of course, then you realize that you're doing it and then it, it you fall off the horse, as it were. Mm. You, you become aware that you're doing it. So self-awareness is obviously the enemy of great acting and so I have great enormous respect for people who can do it for long periods of time because it's 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 otherworldly when you see that happening you know when you watch Daniel Day-Lewis doing it or somebody like that character act yeah. method well yeah method I don't have a lot of time for it because I don't I think a lot of people say the method but actually they're just wanky yeah, uh, you know, I think that they just like being ego. They like they like the ego of it, and they like being it all being centered play. around them. You know, it, it's almost impossible to have five or six method actors on uh, the same scene because uh, who, you know, God, who's going to go first? I mean, it's just horrendous. <laughs> I, I mean, to deal. Brian Cox last year. And yeah, he he's talking, not happy about them, is he? <laughs> he was talking about Jeremy Strong. And well, he said, there you go. Have you just tried acting, dear, dear boy? boy? I know, which the is, famous, the famous the, Olivia thing yeah. to Dustin Hoffman. You know, because, well, whichever way you get there, just don't, just don't be unpleasant and don't get in my way. You know, don't, don't be an asshole, And, you know, don't hold the set to ransom and to hostage. You know, just because you've this is the way. You know, if you if you if you need to do it, just do it quietly and get it. <laughs> how do you how do you stay grounded in an industry full of people like that? <laughs> yeah, because it is. It's an extraordinarily mad. weird. Absolutely mad. Industry. And you've been on sets where you just cannot believe what you're watching. <laughs> Can you give us some examples? No, I can't because you can't because you can't. It's like writing a memoir, isn't it? I, I can't write a memoir because the stories go back to people who are alive. Okay. You know, but yes, I have seen behaviour that you just, you know, people not coming out of their trailer for hours and hours, you know, and meaning, again, selfishness. You know, meaning that somebody who come in to do a two-line part, maybe their scene's going to be cut. But that was an enormous day for them. And they would just come in to play the doctor who puts their head round the door and tells the patient, you know, you know, they've got some terrible terminal disease, whatever. But that was, they've got five and a half lines and that was a big deal for them. But you won't come out in a fucking trailer. So how do you stay grounded? How do you not lose your shit? I tried, do you know what, I've, I think I, about five years ago, I came to a decision about, about trying to achieve simplicity in myself and implicit, simplicity with acting used to be really obsessed with reviews and numbers and marketing strategies and what's the poster what's the strap line what's this what's that you know how many territories blah 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 and I became so disappointed so endlessly disappointed (laughs) with the way things turned out that I went you know what just forget it just forget all of that and concentrate entirely on what happens when you get the green light to go on stage you're on open the door you go in to the set to the stage or when somebody says action just be as simple and as present as you possibly can with that person in that moment at that time 
and try to just be. I had another, a friend, dear friend die last year, Michael Kenneth Williams from The Wire. Mm-hmm. And I'd done a show with him for three years called Happen Leonard. Yes. And uh, it was in really interesting, two wildly different approaches. Me from, you know, RSC and classical theatre and theatre trained and, you know, turn up, know your lines, you know your lines, you've studied them, you've done it, you know what you're going to do or you know vaguely in the ballpark of what you're going to do. And him, who was like working with Miles Davis, it was, he never knew what he was going to do. I mean, sometimes would never, wouldn't he, I mean, wouldn't even have read the scene. Yeah, you know, he'd look at the sides, he'd pick them up, and he'd give me some sides, give me some sides. And he'd look at it, and you'd be reading down, and you'd go, oh, that's funny, that's funny, that's real funny. <laughs> you'd go, fuck me, Michael. That's literally the first time you've read that, isn't it? And we're about to shoot it. And yet, in the first couple of takes, he'd be a bit, you know, trying to reach for lines. By take four, take five, he's just a blinder. Absolute blinder, just totally present, totally with it. So I learned a lot of him. He was a kind of a little genius of his own about being more jazz-like in your in the way you treat the space between action and cut. Really, just be and just react, and that that kind of really helped me a lot because I think uh, English actors. I remember when we were shooting Rome once. We were shooting with this fantastic American director who'd done a lot of soprano stuff, and you know he had. British classical actors who all knew their shit, knew exactly what they were going to do, what they were, what was needed in the scene. And I remember him saying once after a rehearsal, he went, "Okay, cut. Yeah, that was no, that was great. That was actually that's too great. It was too good. It was too. It was too good. We need to fuck this up a bit. So can we just throw it around a bit more and be a lot more casual about it? Because everything was just too nicely placed for him. Mm. He needed more, more chaos, more." accidents to happen to make it live more you know yeah you talk about self-awareness being the enemy of great Mm. acting Mm. and having to be present Mm. that's me it sounds i mean there's a there's a huge amount of mental strength um involved in that isn't there there's discipline isn't there yeah because self-aware, like... It's really tough. It's hard. And by God, I'm not a great actor by any means, you know. So anybody who's thinking... You're, you you're much really better than I actor. am. Well, that's nice. <laughs> that's, that's good. You're High re- bar. You're a very good <laughs> actor, actor, James. No, I'm fine. I'm fine. And I try, but I think the thing is what you do is you just try and make yourself better. And by being a, a simple watch, you know, some of the greatest performances I've ever seen are just really simple they're not overcomplicated. Somebody once said that you know, really bright actors are often really their worst enemy because they just overcomplicate things. Overthink it. And overthink too much. It's just too many things. I'm trying to do this, 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 this. And this. Well, what about just doing just that? Just do that. Just give me that. And context is so critical with film acting and television acting. What I mean by that is, is you in the frame, in the frock, in the costume, whatever on the space, what's the frame, what's, what's all of that information giving the audience. Really, just turn up and say the fucking lines. That's all you have to do, because you don't really need to act anything on top of that. Mm. Just fit nicely in the moment. Done. There we go. We've had... That's a two-minute... James Purifoy <laughs> acting rubbish. school. No, terrible. I'm going to go and have a try, have a go at this lot, like Imelda May. <laughs> it's Oscars, easy. here, here I come. come.
hang on. So, Jim, yeah, the fisherman's friend. Yes. He is grieving the loss of his... The, 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 yeah, everything. here's something that I haven't talked about and I should. I thought I would talk to you about it because it felt like a safe space. So my dad died just before we started making Fisherman's Friends. So we, we had the funeral about a week before we started shooting. Gosh. So it was a really strange experience shooting uh, that film because the, because the big engine... Mm. of the character was his father dying and it made me really have to confront a lot of stuff but also you know the other strange thing about it was that it was um the grief that you go through so with Jim his father had died a year before and that grieving process you know I'm sure you know there's kind of scarring that happens isn't there that you know you scab over and then and sometimes that scab comes off and somebody picks at it or you pick at it and then slowly but surely the scab comes off and then you stuck scar over and you still have the scar but it's not quite as painful anymore mine was very fresh mm-hmm. so sometimes during the f- making of the film we I had to stop takes because I would go, "Mm, sorry, no, uh, tears streaming down my face because I'm in that moment, but I'm not in the right moment for where Jim was in his grief. You know, mine was really fresh and really raw, whereas his had, had time to scab over a bit. And so the two worlds were colliding in a really strange and difficult way. And then halfway through the film, another a dear friend of mine, an actress, died. She died in the middle of the making of the film, and that had another, another it was like another hit wave, you know, hitting me, uh, uh, which would which would all been fine if I'd been doing Spider Man, mm. or, or if I'd been doing another job where no, none of this was not the actual material in itself that we were mm. exploring. Mm. So that was a really difficult process and strange to have to deal with that on a daily basis. And it wasn't, you know, so it was coming very easily, but maybe too easily. Mm. Cut to stock. Can we just pull back? I need to pull back a bit. Also, is there a sense that you don't want your real grief to be... Oh, God, yes. That's a terrible thing about editing, of course. Because then it feels really sullied that you're using it in some terrible way you know, to entertain people. But, you know, but and yet that's what you do all the time as an actor. Mm. You use your own personal experience of life and that's the area that you mine for the experiences that those characters are going through. How did that feel when that happened to me? And it's a terrible thing, that awful moment when you catch yourself looking in the mirror after some terrible news and you go, ah, there it is. Oh, you gross, that's gross, what you just did. Can't believe you used that moment to pop away in your back pocket to remember, Mm. to use at another time, you know. But uh, there you are, that's that's part part of the deal. But I think it's quite, it's, I, I think that's, it's hard on yourself. Well, it might be, but it does feel a bit. It feels it feels a bit cheap, doesn't it? But also, no, because I think fundamentally, 
when you are playing characters who go, are experiencing traumatic events or grief, mm. like it isn't just about entertainment, is it? So, for example, Fisherman's Friends, it, it's very funny and it's very. But there will there was there was a woman in the cinema crying, mm. and it's a way for people to process their own feelings oh, God, yeah, that absolutely. they perhaps haven't no. been able to deal no, with. I think one of the lovely things about being an actor, I think it's one of the kind of social jobs that you do as an actor, and I think which is a really remarkable thing. I love the idea of community, and I love that, I love that, uh, and again, it doesn't happen often, it doesn't happen all the time, but when you're on stage or when you're in a cinema watching you know, a film that you've done, there is a, that quality of silence, of quiet. One of the things that you do, you can do as an actor, is you can make people feel less alone. Mm. Because you're putting something out there, often a vulnerable thing out there, or it might not even be, you know, it might be a laugh, it might be something that's amusing. But what people, people laugh at things that they, because they've experienced them themselves, they get it, they think that's funny because that might have happened to them. Or you might be doing something that is emotionally difficult, but somebody will look at it and go, God, I thought I was just feeling that myself. And I was really lonely in that feeling. And yet that person in some way has expressed it up on the screen or on the stage. And now I feel less alone than I did when I came into the cinema or into this theatre. I'm part of the human race. Mm. I'm part of this. And actually sometimes when it works well, you acting can act as social cohesion mm-hmm. in that way it's the glue it can be the glue that sticks us and reminds us who we are and that we're together in all of this and that's one of the lovely things about it you know there are many lovely things but that's really one of the lovely things absolutely so i think it's okay to to take that of course it is because it's part of the job but it doesn't make it any you know i still feel a bit like you're sullying real things that should matter and they should be private why should they be? But there's also that strange notion, isn't there, that these things should be private, and actually that in itself is part of the. Um, I always think that that sort of voice inside me, oh, you shouldn't be talking about this. Mm-hmm. You shouldn't be, is 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 the voice of the, of the depression or the or the you know it, it's it's it is that it's sort of the body's way of trying to keep it in you. Of course, there's a great yeah. Absolutely. I mean, there's. This, I wanted to say this. One of the things I've been thinking about when I'm coming in to see you is there's this sensational line in King Lear. I, I don't want to think that I'm going all actory on you, but there is an amazing <laughs> line in King Lear where Edgar, who's one of the sons of Gloucester, and he's been rejected by Gloucester at the beginning of the play, and he's had to go through being mad and pretending to be an insane person out on the heath with Lear, and then at the beginning of the second half he comes across his dad, and his dad has had his eyes ripped out. Yes, yes, yes. And he says, and, you know, Shakespeare, always go to Shakespeare for, you know, the beginning of everything. He says it's the worst, it's just the very worst what he's seen and then he checks himself and he says this line and he says the worst is not so long as we can say this is the worst mm-hmm. and that right there 500 years before 400 years before Freud before anybody yeah. is Shakespeare saying talk mm. if you can articulate your pain it is not the end of the line I, it's only in the line when you can say nothing, when all you are is a howling beast. Mm-hmm. Then you're in trouble. 
But while we have the power of articulation and language, you have hope. The worst is not, so long as we can say this is the worst. He's genius. He was. He, he was. Clearly. He clearly was, a I've genius. heard this Shakespeare. Shakespeare was a genius. Was, he knew what he was talking about. But that about. is, to me, is just, and I, remember, and I played that part and I remember saying that line every night and just going, that is one of the most profound things, you know, that you could ever imagine. It's just fantastic. I was too young when I read King Lear because all I could think, I missed all of that, and all I could think was, ew, gross. <laughs> the He's eyes. Out his eyes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, uh, thank you for talking about your dad. Can I ask you, did it bring up? Uh, did, did you did it bring up a lot of that stuff from your childhood again? Your yeah, I mean, you know, the, the difficult. I mean, the diff- the thing is that Jim's relationship with his dad was very different. In that they worked together, they were in each other's lives all the time. I wasn't in my dad's life as much as I'd like to have been. You know, I went on holiday with him twice in my whole life. Really? Uh, I went on holiday down to, he had a villa in Portugal, he invited me down there once and uh, and also he took me when I was about nine or ten on a driving tour, just me and him, of Ireland. Hilarious. Another story. But, uh, uh, so the, but that, was, was it hilarious? Some of it was hilarious, some of it wasn't. He didn't really know what to do with me, you know. He's, I mean, the thing about my dad was he was... Um, Vague. Well, am I going to say vague? I think I don't want to upset my brothers or sisters. He was. He was a bit. Just a bit. I'm not sure if he ever said he loved me. Mm-hmm. Not look me in the eye and I. I you know, if I said love you, dad, and he go love you, yes, no, well, that would be it. I mean, I knew he did. I think he did. I'm pretty. I know he did, but I don't. But I. He never. You know, I tell my kids if one of my kids go into therapy for anything. It's going to be, my dad was so claustrophobic. He told me he loved me all the time. I mean, every single moment of the day he could, he would tell me. Um, so I, I, I think one of the things about my, my dad, maybe both my parents, I think one, I sometimes just wanted, I just wanted to do things. I knew that they wouldn't have done it like that. So bringing my own kids up, I was determined not to make the same mistakes of the mistakes that I felt had been made with mm-hmm. me. You know, from the age of four until the age of 18, when I went to live with him again, twice a year, three times a year, I might see him. You know, he might come and see me maybe at school, maybe once in the summer term, at the end of the summer term. I mean, not that he wasn't... I'm not even going to say he wasn't, he wasn't malign. He wasn't harsh. Just think he was maybe just thinking about his garden. It was it was sort of the way things were as well. Yeah, I think so. So I, you know, it's hard to it's hard to complain about something when you know that is just the way things were. It's like being sent to boarding school when you're seven. It's just the way things were. That's what you did. Is your mother still alive? No, my mother died about five years ago, four or five oh, years sorry. ago, maybe longer. I don't know. I forget how long. I was very close to my mum though. I lived with my mum. She brought me up. She brought us all up. You know, she left my dad. And ran off with somebody from the Amdram Society. Uh, you know, showbiz. <laughs> That's what happens. She um, and then she brought up these uh, these four kids. You know, and uh, on her own, she had a business in the 1950s. You know, she was kind of remarkable in that way. Not many women, certainly in Somerset, had their own business, a successful business. 
You know, she ran an employment agency. She got jobs for you know women all over the county. You know, that was what she did. And uh, so she would have hated it if I'd said she was a feminist because she didn't really like the term. You know, she didn't like all that. And she saw herself as a very feminine woman. But, but she was a feminist, there's no doubt about it. And she gave, in the real possible way, you know, most meaningful way, gave women really big breaks because she gave them independence and financial independence, which meant that they could then do what they wanted to do rather than what their husbands told them to do. And that was the greatest independence of all. Mm. I want to know how you... You kind of touched on gardening, but how do you look after your mental health? Okay, so I am really fortunate. I'm irritatingly level as a person. Okay. So I get frustrated and I might get a little bit uh, impatient sometimes. Patience is, gosh, it's hard to achieve that, isn't it? And especially, I think sometimes my kids are a little bit ratty or annoyed. You know, you've left that, and now you're crying, and you've left that thing in the house that you wanted to bring in the car, and <laughs> get a bit cross about things. So I do have a little. There is an element. I think I, somebody said, and I, not that I believe in astrology because I just don't. But it's a Gemini trait, apparently. You Gemini, obviously, you <laughs> like that. It's a Gemini trait. No, I'm not a Gemini. No, no, I'm Sagittarius. Not a Gemini. Sagittarius. <laughs> So I think a Gemini trait apparently is to bury, keep things out, and then you bury stuff. Yes. And, and you can be perfectly fine, perfectly fine, perfectly fine, and then suddenly quite explosive. Oh, my God. My husband is, he a Gemini? is a Gemini, and that is my husband. Well, I don't know. To a T. Right, well, I don't know if it's because we were born in the month of June, July. I don't know whether it's under the stars that I'm like that or whether it's a mental health thing. Gardening is a huge thing. Me and since I moved out of London and I have a bigger garden, uh, that here's the thing life is secular, Mm -hmm. it comes in cycles, depression comes in cycles, Mm -hmm. gardening comes in cycles. Unless you live in Los Angeles, in which case there's no there's There's no no seasons at all, (laughs) (laughs) which is why they're all so depressed all the time. Then you pay a gardener, exactly. But I think the idea that this plant isn't working now, but it may do next year. The hope and the delight when it does is so profoundly rewarding. You know, a flower, a plant that hasn't flowered and you've never seen it flower, and then one day you go out and there it is. And you go, oh my God. And that beautiful time in May and April where if the ground is just vibrating with hope and discovery and energy, and then, oh my God, and here it all comes. And it's all coming out. It's so exciting to me. But also the secular... So when I moved, we moved to Somerset at the beginning of the pandemic. And for the first time, I was able to see my garden and watch it in real time, rather than every other weekend or you know a few weeks would go by or I'd be away in Mexico. I was in Mexico for eight months, a couple of years ago, filming there, or you know living in New York for a couple of years. Or you know, so I'd never really paid attention to the garden in the way that I do now. And see, and seeing that, and seeing that this may be a bad, you know, winter is shit. January is shit in the garden. It's depressing and it's cold and it's dark and you've got a low light, low, you know, even when it's sunny, it's really low, the low hanging sun. And I find that difficult. I find the light difficult. I find the state of the garden difficult. But there's always hope at the end because spring 
is round the fucking corner. And when that happens, it's just delightful. And I love that. Mm. And I think, I really think, I urge people who are feeling low about depression or feeling low, get out there, get get your head into your plants. I know it's not catch-all. I know that there are many, many ways of dealing with depression, whether it be drugs or talking or yoga or a million different things. And obviously it's a many-carded hand that you've got to play. But one of them, if you've got a window box, you've got a garden. You can create, and that can give you hope that something is around the corner and is going to be better. James Purifoy, that was beautiful. Oh, bless you. Thank you so much. I should also say, just before we go, that obviously he dresses up as a fish finger in Fisherman's Friends. I but do. just in case anyone's thinking that that's what he looks like the whole way through the like, he's not like sobbing as a, <laughs> as a fish finger. <laughs> Or, <laughs> no, like no. that's one bit of, yeah. of the film that no, made no, me I laugh that's, a lot. That, yeah, no, that is important to say about the film. Before you go, please follow Mad World on your podcast app to make sure you never miss an episode. And if you feel like it, leave us a rating and a review. I love to read what you think about the shows and also see your guest suggestions. Mad World is all about helping our listeners, and I love hearing from you. The Telegraph also let me loose in column form, so if you'd like to hear even more from me, head to telegraph.co.uk forward slash madworld, and you can get your first 30 days access to the website completely free. If you've been affected by anything we've talked about in our podcast today, the following organisations offer free and confidential support over the phone. The Samaritans can be reached 24 hours a day, seven days a week on 116-123. Or you can contact the mental health charity Mind for advice on a range of mental health issues. Their phone number is 0300-123-3393. That's 0300-123-3393. They're accessible 9am to 5pm, Monday to Friday, excluding bank holidays. There's also Young Minds, who provide support if you're a parent or a carer worried about a child's welfare. They're on 0808 802 5544. That's 0808 802 5544. If you prefer tech support, Shout is a 24-7 UK crisis tech service available for times when people feel they need immediate support. By texting Shout to 85258, you will be put in touch with a trained crisis volunteer who will chat to you via text. And importantly, please remember this. You are not alone. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 